You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining this special edition of the American Revolution. I had the opportunity to speak with David Price following the release of his new book, John Hazlitt's World, about the colonel who commanded the regiment known as the Delaware Blues in the early part of the war. This is Price's third book covering the ten crucial days of the war, starting with Washington's crossing of the Delaware on Christmas night, 1776. David Price is also a historical interpreter at Washington's Crossing Historic Park in Pennsylvania. He conducts guided tours at the park, as well as at Princeton Battlefield State Park in New Jersey. I spoke with Mr. Price over a remote call to discuss the life of Colonel Hazlitt. David Price, thank you for joining me on the American Revolution podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You're here today because you've written a new book about Colonel John Hazlitt. What prompted you to write a book about John Hazlitt, and how important is he to the story of the American Revolution? Well, the genesis of this book, Mike, was my first literary effort, Rescuing the Revolution, Unsung Patriot Heroes, and the Ten Crucial Days of America's War for Independence. And John Hazlitt was one of several individuals who I profiled in that book in a series of biographical vignettes, which focused primarily on the contributions that each of these people made to the Patriot cause during what was perhaps the 10 most inspirational days in American history, and perhaps the most pivotal moment in the War for Independence. Now, why did I choose Hazlitt? Well, you know, his name kept popping up in various things that I was reading, most especially in David Hackett Fisher's Pulitzer Prize-winning work, Washington's Crossing, which is the Bible for people like me who are historical interpreters, or in some cases, perhaps hysterical interpreters, at Washington Crossing Historic Park. That's a joke, by the way. You have to read that book, and you have to have a decent command, shall we say, of the material in order to be able to give a tour there under the auspices of a friends group. So the more I read about him, the more I was impressed by what he did and and the the kind of character he displayed in the course of his revolutionary service. So around the time that I was wrapping up that book, and I guess the germ, if you will, or the seed, when he's the right metaphor here, had been planted to perhaps do something a little more elaborate on Hazlitt. And I came across the book by Fred Walters, John Hazlitt, A Useful One, which as far as I know, was at least at that point, was the only book that had been written about him. It's a self-published work. came out, I believe, in 2005. Very engaging read. I enjoyed it immensely. But it's written in the form, largely, not entirely, but largely in the form of a historical novel. There's a good deal of, well, frankly, fictional material in there. 
imaginary dialogue and scenes. A lot of useful information too, and it, and it proved to be very helpful to me. My initial reaction after reading that was, well, Fred has this subject covered pretty well, and I don't need to pursue Colonel Haslett any further. But the more I thought about it, the more I felt that Hazlitt deserved an effort by someone to craft a more conventional account of his life, a nonfiction work about the colonel and his Delaware regiment. Now, I should add parenthetically that since his first book, Fred Walters did publish what I gather is a more conventional work, a nonfiction account, a biography of the colonel, which I believe is entitled John Hazlitt's American Journey but it was published exclusively in the Kindle edition. I decided to go ahead and pursue this idea of trying to write a book about Hazlitt. Just to see, you know, when I was starting out, I was just with the mindset of, well, let's see how this goes and and what it looks like. And it was a challenge to produce something that is of book length because, as I pointed out in the preface to the book, there's not a lot known about his pre-Revolutionary War life. We don't even know exactly when he was born. This is someone about whom, and I mentioned this too in the preface or the introduction, we don't even know exactly what he looks like. There are physical descriptions of him, but there's no authentic visual representation of him by an 18th century artist, not, not by anyone who was alive when he was. There are only two images that I'm aware of, which I discussed in the book, one of which is the cover image from the Stanley Arthur's painting, a reversal of the the image of Hazlitt in the uh, Stanley Arthur's painting that hangs in the Delaware Public Archives building. But in any case, I decided to push ahead with the project. So ultimately what it became was an effort to interweave three themes. One is a Hazlitt biography. One is the story of his 1776 regiment, the first incarnation of the Delaware regiment, with a little bit about the, the post-Hazlitt regiment. That is the reconstituted regiment in, in a truncated form that was created in 1777 after his death. And then the last theme, of course, is more general one. It's putting this all in the context of the 1776 campaign of Washington's army, the New York and the New Jersey campaign, which, of course, culminates in what we call the 10 Crucial Days campaign from December 25th, 1776 through January 3rd, 1777, when Hazlitt is killed at the Battle of Princeton. The other thing I think that was pushing me to do this was, at some point when I was writing the second book, it occurred to me that it would be a neat idea if I could do a trilogy on the 10 Crucial Days. I'm not aware that any other author has done that. So what distinguishes Hazlitt from anyone else in terms of his contribution to the Patriot cause? Well, he created one of the elite regiments in the Continental Army in 1776. It started out as, I believe, the largest regiment in the Army in the early months of that year. They started recruiting in January, and by May, they were up to almost 800 men. They were fully uniformed, and I think they were perhaps the only regiment in the Army that could make that claim, fully uniformed, fully armed, under Hazlitt's tutelage, and that of his adjutant, Thomas Holland, formerly of his Britannic Majesty's Army, they molded these this force into a, an efficient, elite fighting unit. Before we get too much into the details of the Delaware Blues, I want to ask one thing. 
You said we don't know much about Hazlitt's pre-war life. We do know that he came from Northern Ireland, right? And that he settled in Kent County, Delaware? Do we have any information about why he left Ireland and why he settled in Delaware? Well, he may have had personal and or political reasons for leaving Ulster when he did. His wife died, his first wife died about five years before he came to the colonies, which he did in 1757 or thereabouts. My understanding is there there may have been some personal issues between him and members of the congregation. Her death may have had an emotional toll on him such that the belief she died probably died in, in childbirth, so he was left with a, a young daughter, that this may have taken a, a toll on him and, and as such impacted his ability to perform his ministerial duties. And that may have led to some tension, shall we say, between the young minister and the members of his parish. More generally, when he came to the colonies, it was in the context of this larger emigration movement, if you will, of the Scotch-Irish from Northern Ireland to the New World during the early and mid-18th century, which was because of the harsh economic, the adverse economic conditions under which many of them lived, and the restrictions, the rather onerous restrictions that had been imposed on them by British policy towards Ireland, towards the Presbyterian Church that was regarded as an unwelcome adversary, if you will, to the established Anglican Church. So I think there's a plausible argument to be made that that was part of Hazlitt's motivation, perhaps maybe the dominant part of his motivation. So when he came over here, I believe he was living initially with some cousins who had emigrated previous to him in southern Pennsylvania, near the uh, the Maryland border, and started out as a preacher there. He would have been much in demand because the number of Presbyterian congregations in the area outran the number of available ministers. The supply of the latter was limited because the church insisted that their preachers be university educated, and so they weren't exactly a dime a dozen. Hazlitt, who met that qualification because he had graduated with a degree in divinity from the University of Glasgow, which was then, I think it's fair to say, one of the most prestigious universities in the English-speaking world. He seems to have been perhaps disenchanted, you know, I'm, I'm reading something into this now, with his ministerial duties. He abandoned those, at least temporarily, to volunteer to serve with a, as a captain with a Pennsylvania Provincial Regiment during the French and Indian War, the 2nd Pennsylvania Regiment, and served with the expedition that was led by General John Forbes against Fort Duquesne near or around the site of present-day Pittsburgh in 1758. After the war, after he had been discharged, he returned briefly to southern Pennsylvania, but he was living near the boundary line with what were then known as the three lower counties of Pennsylvania, which later in 1776 officially became known as Delaware. That was the, the unofficial name, I guess, at the time. So he had an opportunity to explore that area, the three lower counties, and over time was drawn to Kent County the middle of the three counties between Newcastle in the north and Sussex in the south, and gravitated towards the Dover area, whether it was the land or the natural resources that were attractive to him, among others, or something in particular about the community. I'm not sure, but 
in the early 1760s, he appears to have settled in there and he would find a second wife, would remarry and settle in and establish what grew to be a large plantation, which he called Longfield. And he became, by dint of his ambition, energy, and entrepreneurial instincts, became a successful uh, landowner. And he gravitated away from the ministry towards initially becoming a physician. Uh, I use the term loosely by 21st century standards. But this was a man who continually throughout his life appears to have been reinventing himself. He was a, a minister turned militia captain <laughs> during the French and Indian War, turned physician, turned planter, then turned politician. He was elected to the Delaware Colonial Assembly five times, turned revolutionary activist, and then ultimately turned regimental army colonel. He was a, a man of many talents, a Renaissance man, a, a soldier scholar, so seems to have been pretty successful at whatever he tackled. You mentioned that Hazlitt served in the Forbes campaign during the French and Indian War. We also know that George Washington served as an officer on that campaign. Do we know if the two men interacted at all or got to know each other during the Forbes campaign? I don't know that for sure, Mike. I know in the Fred Walters book, and again, there's imaginary dialogue there in a number of instances. So he has a conversation either between Hazlitt and Washington and Colonel Washington or Hazlitt and uh, Hugh Mercer, who met Washington during the French and Indian War, during from their service together, became a friend of Washington's, moved to Virginia after the war, and established an apothecary practice where two of his patients were Washington's mother, Mary Ball Washington, and his stepdaughter, Patsy. So there's no documented record that I'm aware of of Hazlitt having met Washington. It's quite possible, if not likely, that he did. I think what Hazlitt is probably best known for during his time with that expedition was the letter that he wrote to a friend of his, Reverend Allison, in November 1758, when the Forbes expedition arrived at the remains of Fort Duquesne after the French had attempted to blow the whole thing to smithereens. He provided the most full description that we have, the most complete description that we have of what the ruins of the fort, if you will, look like at that point, and that is the first documented letter we have that was written by Hazlitt, and the first of what was unfortunately uh, apparently a limited amount of correspondence that he produced. I say that because from the standpoint of just getting a better handle on him, when you read his correspondence, you can see that this was, was an immensely learned man, very articulate. I'm sure he was that way verbally, you know, as a preacher, obviously, he would have needed to be, presumably, and as an officer leading men in combat, I made the point somewhere in the book that given what he had studied as part of a rigorous curriculum at the University of Glasgow, this was someone who quite literally could have led men into battle in uh, giving orders in Latin or Greek as well as English. I don't think there would have been much occasion for him to do that, given that there was a conspicuous dearth of soldiers from ancient Greece and Rome serving with the Delaware Blues. But the point is, he could have done it if he needed to. That's one of the things that's so impressive about the man and what so well qualified him to be an officer, both, you know, with the Pennsylvania militia during the French and Indian War and then with the Continental Army in 1776. So I don't know, as to answer your question, I don't know if he met Washington during the war. So I can't honestly tell you that he actually would have engaged with him to any extent prior to his regiment 
joining up with Washington's army in Manhattan in August of 1776. I find it interesting that Washington did have a great many contacts before the war with men who became leading figures in the Continental Army. I always wonder whether his opinion of them earlier in his life had much impact on the selection of these particular men for leadership roles in the war. Now, in this case, I don't think Washington had much to do with Hazlitt becoming a colonel. Hazlitt was very active in pre-war patriot activities and had a good relationship with Caesar Rodney, who was one of the Delaware delegates to the Continental Congress. Yeah, Rodney was Hazlitt's friend and political ally, a political mentor. He is really the, the fellow who gave Hazlitt his jump start, shall we say, in the public arena, first propelling him into politics in 1770 when he recruited Hazlitt. They would have known each other as fellow Kent County landowners at the time and apparently recruited Hazlitt to run, Rodney did, to run on his slate of candidates for the assembly in 1770. And then Hazlitt would be elected to four consecutive one-year terms, was defeated in 74, then came back to win in 75. As the revolutionary fervor intensified in the three lower counties in the early 1770s, they were both caught up with that. I think Hazlitt was the more radical of the two perhaps because of his experience in Ireland as one of the many Scotch-Irish Presbyterians who were alienated by British rule and kind of had a chip on their shoulder when they came over here, notwithstanding his having fought on the side of the British during the French and Indian War. The Scotch-Irish ultimately comprised something like 40% of Washington's army, so they were clearly a significant force there. I've always wondered how much Hazlitt may have influenced Rodney in the Patriot cause. There was a pretty sizable Patriot sentiment in Lower Delaware before and during the early war. I wonder how much of Hazlitt's radicalism and knowledge of British abuses had an influence on Rodney and others before the war. Well, Hazlitt, as I mentioned, he was a zealot. Caesar Rodney's younger brother, Thomas Rodney, who was a political ally of Hazlitt. In fact, they both well, Caesar too, of course, but both the two radicals ran together on the same ticket as assembly candidates in 1774, unsuccessfully. I think the, the both of them influenced Rodney to a certain extent. And while he was a moderate, Caesar was, I think that gave him the ability to, shall we say, find common ground as, as he sought to do with people of different political factions which presumably was the key to his success, to his high reputation among different factions, enabled him to serve as Speaker of the Delaware Assembly for many years. There's no question that he was a supporter of the revolutionary cause. Of course, knowing Hazlitt as well as he did and recognizing Hazlitt's organizational and leadership talents got him involved in organizing the Delaware militia in 1775, the Kent County militia, and I think the Delaware militia as a whole. And then, of course, it was Rodney who writes to, after the Continental Congress adopted a series of resolutions which directed each of the colonies to establish a battalion or battalions, a term that was then used interchangeably with regiment. The Congress had already resolved or ordered, if you will, that Pennsylvania established four battalions. And so 
Now, late in 1775, they decreed it. The three lower counties should establish their own battalion, separate from what Pennsylvania had done. And uh, Rodney, as the leading political figure in Delaware, writes to his friend, Hazlitt, and asks him if he would consider becoming colonel of this new regiment. Hazlitt's response, which is written on Christmas Eve, probably about, oh, maybe about two months after the birth of his, his last daughters, the, the fifth of his children, and it would have been about a month after he had been reelected to the Delaware Assembly. He agrees to serve, and he writes what I think is a very poignant letter to Rodney, accepting the command in the context of what Hazlitt articulates as his deep-seated commitment to the cause of independence and to the support of the Continental Congress. So Rodney, more than anyone else, the Delaware's revolutionary dynamo, as I think I call them in the book, was really the person who got Hazlitt involved. And as you say, it was a mutually influential relationship. I relied heavily on the book that was published, I believe, by the Delaware Historical Society, Correspondence to and from Caesar Rodney, which has most of the letters that, that were written between Caesar and, and Hazlitt, especially as the campaign unfolded in 1776. And you get a sense, uh, not just of the political, but the personal connection that they had between them. Hazlitt was reliant on Rodney to kind of be a conduit, a go-between, to communicate between Hazlitt and his wife back in Delaware and let her know what was going on with him and giving her assurance that, that Hazlitt was okay, but in some cases, shall we say, sparing the gory details, not letting her know exactly what he was having to endure in the course of his military service. The Delaware Blues were famous for the fact that they did have a nice set of military uniforms and military-issued muskets at the beginning of the war. I've always wondered, how did they get that? Was it financing from the Delaware government, the Continental Congress, or how did they get so well-equipped compared to other regiments? Well, I think it was Delaware, and it was also the Continental Congress, and it was the influence of Cecil Rodney, the Speaker of the Delaware Assembly and as a member of the Continental Congress. So I think he had a lot to do with that in terms of securing that financial support for the Delawares to be uniformed and, and to obtain arms. The muskets that they obtained initially, at least, were apparently among those that had been captured by the French and were part of that cachet of arms that they were covertly providing to the, shall we say, the glorious cause, to use Washington's term, in 1776. So that was how they came to be so well-equipped relative to everybody else starting out. Like most of the Middle and Southern colonies, Hazlitt's regiment joins the Continental Army after the Siege of Boston is over. He begins the war in New York. I guess his first real taste of combat, or at least that of his regiment, he wasn't there, was at the Battle of Brooklyn, right? Yeah, and the reason he wasn't there when the battle began, I mean, he would have arrived on the scene at some point during the fighting on August 27th. And I point out in the book, this was one of many mistakes that Washington made at the time. This was, of course, his first major battle as commander of the Continental Army. One of his most grievous errors was that he insisted on holding a court-martial the day before the battle. No, actually, it, was, it started two days before the battle. It was on August 25th, and then it carried over to the 26th, of a Prussian officer who had joined the Army, Continental Army, named Hermann uh, Zedwitz, and who had allegedly sold secrets to the enemy. 
Washington was so grieved at that that he insisted on holding this court-martial right then and there, notwithstanding the fact that he was getting some faulty intel, I think, about the location and the, the intent, shall we say, the enemy's intent that could be presumed from that, of General Howe's forces at that point. He had every reason to believe, I think, that a battle was imminent, and yet he insists on holding this court-martial, and he insists on having, I think it was something like 13 officers there to serve at this court-martial, including Colonel Hazlitt, including his Lieutenant Colonel Gunning Bedford, including William Smallwood, who was the Colonel of the Maryland Regiment, which would fight side-by-side with the Delawares throughout the war. They were the so-called sister regiments, if you will, two elite units. The court-martial runs till late in the day on the 26th, so they can't get across the East River to the American fortifications on Brooklyn Heights until the 27th, after the battle had begun in the early morning hours. When Hazlitt arrives, his men are then with the Marylanders and another, well, they started out with with a Connecticut regiment and with some Pennsylvania militia who were part of this force that was commanded by Lord Sterling, a.k.a. General William Alexander from Basking Ridge, New Jersey, who were holding off, were heavily outnumbered. There were about 2,000 of them to start, but their numbers dwindled as casualties mounted, and they were fighting this holding action for several hours against a force of uh, British and Hessian regulars uh, under the command of General James Grant, who were continuously being reinforced as the morning wore on. And so at one point, I think Sterling's brigade is outnumbered by more than four to one. Also, they're being hemmed in by another British force under General Cornwallis, which had been part of the famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, I guess, British flanking movement led by General Clinton through the Jamaica Pass overnight, where they did an end run around the Americans, a pass that they had really neglected to guard. I mean, I think there were five militia officers on horseback who were guarding that that whole pass. That's another mistake made by the Continental Army. And so Howe's army arrives behind their uh, left and center lines at about nine in the morning. And that really sets the stage for what's going to happen, for what becomes a, a near disaster. Miraculously enough, most of the American troops were able to scamper back to their fortifications on Brooklyn Heights. Sterling's regiment, they weren't really aware of what was going on in the rear. So they were fighting this holding action for several hours until it becomes apparent to Sterling that they can't hold off the enemy any longer. This was the Delaware Blues' first real military action in this fight, according to tradition or legend or whatever. General Washington, who has come across the East River and is in the Brooklyn fortifications and is observing the action with his spyglass, says something like, what brave fellows I must this day lose. Now, I don't know if he said that, whether he was referring specifically to the Maryland Regiment or the Marylanders and Delawares. You probably get a different answer about that, depending on who he talks to. But he clearly had a very high opinion of the Delawares, considering how he would subsequently use them. So it's entirely plausible that he was including this in his expression of approbation. At the the moment, the pivotal moment, when General Sterling decides we can't continue to hold out, he takes part of his force and he leads a desperation, last-ditch effort to hold off the British advance while the rest of his force he orders to retreat across the Gowanus Creek, which is the only way of escaping, a creek with wide marshes on both sides. And at this point, the tide is coming in. The Delawares and some of the Marylanders are able 
most of them anyway, to make their escape across the creek under very difficult conditions, swimming across. And of course, they're under fire from the enemy artillery fire while they're doing this. Fred Walters says something in, in his book. I don't know if he's relying on a specific account, but I think it's entirely imaginable that this would have happened, that Colonel Hazlitt, having recently arrived on the battlefield, would have, among others, gone down to the water's edge to the Gowanus Creek to personally help rescue as many of those soldiers as he could to, to pull them up out of the muck onto dry land and uh, get them to safety. And he reports afterwards in, in his account of the battle that the Delaware were returned torn from shot and shell, but he was not personally involved in that first battle. And yet he was well aware by virtue of, and he reports this in his correspondence to Caesar Rodney after the battle, from the comments that he received from other officers, he knew that the Delawares had acquitted themselves very well in this initial encounter, and notwithstanding a disappointment in what had happened, could take a justifiable pride in how they had fought and had proven that their esprit de corps wasn't just for the parade ground, it also carried over to actual combat. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. That's certainly one of the most famous moments for the Delaware Regiment in the course of the war. Eventually, though, the survivors were able to escape across the East River to Manhattan in a near-miraculous escape. The Delawares, along with the Marylanders, in that case, acted as a protective rear guard for Washington's army. Somebody had to stay in the trenches while the troops were withdrawing across the East River, which it took them all night into the next morning to do. And the Delawares and the Marylanders were assigned to do that, presumably by General Washington or at his behest. And this would be the first of several instances during the 1776 campaign when they played a role like that. So they would have been one of the last units to go across the East River to Manhattan. It seems like Washington really did rely on them for some of the more critical actions that he needed. Quite frankly, if there had not been fog the following morning, they probably would have been captured or killed by the enemy. That's how perilous it really was. Their next encounter with the British was, if I can pronounce it right, at Mamaroneck. Yes, you got it. The Battle of Mamaroneck, which I've been told is known by locals up there in Westchester County as the skirmish of Heathcote Hill. I guess Battle of Mamaroneck makes it sound more impressive. It was a large-scale skirmish, I suppose you could call it. There were about 750 soldiers under Hazlitt's command, 
mostly, again, <laughs> the Delaware and Maryland units with some Virginians against about 500 loyalist soldiers who were serving in what was called the Queen's American Regiment under the command of Colonel Robert Rogers of French and Indian War fame. How that came about was that Hazlitt was ordered by the brigade commander, Lord Sterling, who was familiar with the area. He had received intel about the location of Rogers's unit, and Rogers were regarded as a real scoundrel, as a turncoat uh, by Washington and those under him. And it was hoped that they could ambush this unit and, and ideally capture Rogers. I think that that was the uh, really the intent. So he uh, directs Hazlitt to lead this overnight attack, gives them specific directions. They have local guides from Westchester County. And uh, they march overnight to the scene or the site of Rogers' encampment, which is pretty close, I think, you know, maybe a couple of miles away or not much more than that from the main body of British troops under uh, General William Howe. And as Hazlitt's men were marching down there, they realized they were fairly close to the main enemy force. So it was kind of a precarious maneuver in that sense. They struck the Loyalist unit at about four in the morning. Remember, it was dark out, so it was hard to know who was what, where. There was a great deal of confusion. Some of the Loyalist soldiers, in order to confuse the Americans, were shouting things like, surrender, you Tory dogs. So there was a lot of confusion in, the, in this fighting. Ultimately, Hazlitt comes away with a, shall we say, an incomplete victory. So for all his zealotry in the cause, it didn't supersede his sense that he needed to exercise prudent military judgment in a situation like this. So because of the confusion and not knowing exactly how many enemy soldiers are there and where they are, he decides to order a, I won't call it a retreat, but we'll say advance in a different direction. They come away with, I believe, 36 prisoners and a substantial number of arms. Had relatively few casualties to that extent. Even though it's a skirmish, it's a rare success for the Patriot cause during what, as you know, was an otherwise very dismal New York campaign. Unfortunately, the luster of their success, such as it was, was tarnished by the fact that on their return to Sterling's encampment in the early morning hours of October 22nd, they run into a unit of Pennsylvania riflemen who I guess had been similarly engaged. They had also been sent out from the brigade to launch an overnight raid against the enemy, and they apparently had been pretty successful in that. But these two units, the Delawares and the Pennsylvanians, when they come across each other, the Pennsylvanians mistake the Delawares for enemy troops. Now, whether it was because of their blue uniforms, maybe they thought they were Hessians, whether it was because they were wearing mitered caps, which traditional accounts of the regiment have always said was the case, although that's been disputed by some military historians. And if they were wearing mitered caps, that also would have made them appear to be Hessian soldiers. In any case, the Pennsylvanians fired on the Delawares, and there was an exchange of fire, and nine Delawares were killed and six Pennsylvanians. When Hazlitt gets back to camp and reports to Sterling, and notwithstanding his disappointment that they didn't capture Rogers, he, according to, to Hazlitt's account and what's been written by others, is highly complimented by Sterling and by the rest of the command. In fact, one of Washington's secretaries, Harrison, writes a, a dispatch or a letter to, I believe it was Governor Trumbull of Connecticut, the same day, making note of the fact of Hazlitt's raid 
So obviously this was something that the, the Army's command had been apprised of in short order, and I'm sure they were appreciative of any good news they could get at that point. It seemed like Hazlitt had a pretty good and conspicuous record of service in battle. And again, in a short time later, at the Battle of Chatterton's Hill, while fighting at White Plains, he was also, again, a conspicuous leader. Over the course of the New York campaign, the Continental Congress promoted, I think, 15 people to Brigadier General, and notably, Hazlitt was not one of them. Do you have any speculation on why that was? I've always wondered if it was that Delaware was not deemed large enough to justify a general from that state. Yeah, I think it was political considerations more than anything else that politics did enter into a, into decisions like that to the extent that the Congress was continuously cognizant of the needs or, or the interests of the larger states who were going to provide most of the manpower for the army and wanted to assure their ardent support for the cause. So I think that, more than anything, was what intruded into the decision-making process, although I believe that had Hazlitt lived, that he would have been promoted to Brigadier General probably in 1777. And at least according to what he writes, he does write about this in his, what we believe was his last letter, which was to Caesar Rodney on New Year's Day, 1777. And he talks about his disappointment at not being promoted. He thought he had Washington's support for the promotion, and he may very well have. But clearly, to his mind, he did. And, and he tells Rodney that he is disappointed, but he will not take any rash action until he's had a chance to meet with him and talk to him about this, which, of course, he never got the opportunity to do because he was killed two days later. I think, I mean, he certainly merited it. Segwaying from what you were saying prior to your question, you referenced White Plains and the stand that, that Hazlitt and his men made at Chatterton's Hill. It's almost miraculous, really, that Hazlitt lived as long as he did. When you consider the situations that he was in, prior to that, he was uh, afflicted with a serious bout of dysentery for about a month from mid-September to mid-October. And in one of his letters to Rodney, he kind of suggests that at one point he was like, he didn't care whether he lived or died. Mm -hmm. He eventually did come out of it, but he, he, it took him a while. And he was not a young man, certainly by the standards of that time, he was almost 50 years old. And uh, then at, at Chatterton's Hill, he almost gets his head blown off when a British projectile hits uh, the carriage of the cannon that, that he, Hazlitt, is, is helping to move on top of that wooded ridge at the time. Uh, and of course, you know, he's, he's subject to the same risks, if you will, as his, as his other men, aside from injury on the battlefield, disease, as I mentioned, exposure to the elements, which he claimed was after the Battle of Long Island, how he and other members of his regiment became ill. And then, of course, he falls <laughs> falls into the Delaware River, shouldn't laugh about it, on the return trip to Pennsylvania after the first battle of Delaware. And he's uh, marching around on, on semi-frozen legs for the last week of his life. That's why I say, you know, I mean, it was almost miraculous that he did survive as long as he did. He certainly went through an awful lot, and so did his men. I think the Delaware Blues had at least half their men on disability at one point during the White Plains campaign. Disease really took its toll on everybody, but they did stick it out. Was Hazlitt with Charles Lee, or did he retreat across New Jersey with Washington? He came across with Washington. His unit was briefly serving under Lee after the Battle of White Plains, but they came across with Washington. 
They were actually in New Brunswick, or Brunswick, as they would have called it, when Washington's army arrived there on December 1st in the course of their retreat across 80 to 90 miles of northern and central New Jersey and four rivers. And uh, this is another instance at New Brunswick when Hazlitt's regiment serves as the protective rear guard for Washington's army while the main part of the army is making its escape or its withdrawal southward. They're holding off the British, not by themselves, there were others. There was famously perhaps the battery commanded by then 21-year-old New York artillery captain, who you might have heard of, named Alexander Hamilton. That's when he wasn't singing. And then they will act as the rear guard of Washington's army as it's retreating from Princeton down to, to Trenton. Yeah, I, I think that you get a sense there's kind of these numerical indications of, uh, of what was going on with the the Delaware Blues during this period. As I mentioned, you know, they started out with close to 800 men. Uh, there appears to be a great deal of variance, shall we say, between different accounts in terms of how light or how heavy their casualties were at the Battle of Long Island or the Battle of Brooklyn. But then the, there's a roll, regimental roll call on October 3rd where 348 Delawares report present and fit for duty. Then on November 3rd, I believe it is, 260. And then on December 22nd, three days before the crossing, you're down to 108, 92 privates and 16 officers. But you get a sense that these guys were dropping like flies. I mean, some of it was due to battlefield casualties. Uh, a lot of it was due to disease, exposure to the elements, malnutrition. Some men were leaving with authorization and some without, some who were deserting. One of Hazlitt's officers, Lieutenant Enoch Anderson, who produced his own account, which I made considerable use of, of his service, who was promoted to captain by Hazlitt, I believe on December 3rd. He relates how he, among some other captains, were called to Hazlitt's headquarters. This was after the Army had retreated across the Delaware, and they're in Bucks County. They're stationed in Upper Bucks County in around Stolbury Township. This is where Sterling's Regiment was encamped, in around the site of the Thompson-Neely House, which is today part of the upper section of Washington Crossing Historic Park. And according to Anderson, Hazlitt calls his officers in, and he tells them to go to Delaware and assist in the effort to recruit a new regiment, or a technically correct a reconstituted regiment, because obviously the unit's numbers are dwindling, and Hazlitt is aware that there's an effort being made back in Delaware to recruit more men. He had been approached in mid-November, I guess, by a two-man delegation from the Delaware Assembly asking him to agree to continue to serve as commander of the, or the reconstituted regiment in 1777. Congress, of course, the Continental Congress at this time, is providing incentives. They realize these one-year enlistments are go aren't going to cut it. we got to recruit new men for a, a new army, so to speak, one where they will agree to serve for a longer period of time, three years or the, the balance of the war, whichever comes first. Washington is desperately aware of how important this is to the future of his army. He writes, as I recall, in one of his many pieces of correspondence around this time, mid-December, something like, if every nerve is not strained to recruit a, a new army with all possible expedition, I think the game is pretty near up. So Hazlitt sends a number of officers back to Delaware, and he tells them, I will stay here with the army. You go down there, recruit as many men as you can, as quickly as you can, and bring them back to camp. This is around the, in the middle of December. 
yeah, maybe 10 days or so before the Christmas night crossing of the Delaware. At that point, I think he hopes that he has enough men left in the regiment for at least one more good fight. And the other thing I'd mention is that, you know, aside from the fact that their ranks were being depleted, was that the soldiers who were still there, the hardcore unit of his army that had still stuck it out, they were, in comparison with how they appeared when they first started out in their impressive blue uniforms, most of these soldiers at this point were in rags. They were wearing civilian clothes pretty much anything that they could get their hands on, as, of course, many other soldiers were doing, too. I think that was true of the entire army at the time. I mean, they were really a mess. I think Washington's entire army dwindled down to about 2,000 men before Lee's army could join them. They were just struggling with a lack of everything, both men and supplies. I think his force was down to about 10% of its original size by mid-December. And, of course, that fact plus the condition of the men, many of them didn't have winter clothes or shoes or stockings or blankets, and the fact that at least half of his remaining soldiers were on the verge of going home when their one-year enlistments expired on December 31st. All of that was intel that British command was getting from their spies in the American camp. But, of course, Hazlitt is one of the few people who does stick it out. His regiment plays a crucial role in the Ten Crucial Days, crossing the Delaware and participating in the First Battle of Trenton. Yes, he's down to, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this, but, you know, after the First Battle, most of his men go home because they believe that their enlistments are going to be up on December 31st. There's some question as to whether or not that was, in fact, the case. But Hazlitt decides not to make an issue of it. He knows the sacrifices they've made. He knows there's a new regiment, a reconstituted regiment that's being organized down in Delaware. And, and these men, you know, they're not aware that Washington is planning to renew the offensive to cross back over the Delaware for the fourth time that month on December 29th and 30th and 31st. So they leave. And when Washington finds out about it from Hazlitt, he's furious. Yeah, his regiment's pretty much gone at that point. He's down to like a couple of officers, NCOs, and about two privates. He's down to six men, including Hazlitt. He, he tells this to Caesar Rodney in, in his last letter on New Year's Day. Also says Washington was in a fit of rage. He ordered that the Delaware Regiment be pursued and that the men be brought back in chains, and which wasn't practical. So that was just a cathartic moment, I guess, for him to express his frustration, which I think was peaked because he knew uh, how valuable their service had been to the cause. And so it was probably a, a real shock to him that they had left. As Christopher Ward, who, who wrote the, that iconic work about the Delaware Regiment back in 1941, said these Delaware soldiers had nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to apologize for, given the service that they had provided to the Army and the, and the hardships that they had suffered. And it wasn't unreasonable for them to conclude with three four days left before they believed their enlistments expired, that it was appropriate for them to leave. And I'm sure some of them, as was the case with other Delaware soldiers who had left before that, but uh, some of them, I think, probably were angling for positions in the new regiment and to take advantage of whatever bennies the Congress was going to offer as incentives to serve in that regiment. But yeah, I mean, he's down to six men, and they, and they are the ones who will accompany him to Princeton on the overnight march on January 2nd, where he's this guy who's almost 50 years old, the colonel on still somewhat, if not largely, frozen legs from his spill on the Delaware River, marches 12 miles overnight on frozen ground in freezing temperatures. 
to help lead the charge the next day when he will meet his fate. Showing his usual battlefield bravery, he's out in front, gets shot in the head, and is killed almost instantly. And that was the sudden end of the budding career of John Hazlitt. Washington won the Battle of Princeton, basically, because he had about a four-to-one numerical advantage. It would have been pretty hard for him to lose. He won in spite of his battle plan, not because of it. He had this tendency to come up with these overly complex tactical approaches to battle. He did it at Princeton, and he was saved by the numbers and by his own personal bravery. The unit that Hazlitt was serving in, he was with Mercer. Mercer's brigade was the smallest unit at the Army at that point, but they were down to 350 men. Based on Washington's orders, they were racing ahead of the rest of the brigade, uh, this, this small advance guard of 120 men, to confront what they thought was a small British patrol leaving Princeton under Lieutenant Colonel Charles Mahood. Turned out they were heavily outnumbered, that is, the advance brigade. And most of the, these 120 men, which included Mercer and Hazlitt, were riflemen from Pennsylvania and Maryland, which meant they didn't have bayonets because the rifle couldn't accommodate a bayonet. So when they encountered Mahood's force and the British launched a bayonet charge, there was no way that that small advance guard could withstand that attack. And so at that point, Mercer falls from his horse and he's stabbed seven times and he'll die 19. Hazlitt tries to rally his men or come to the aid of Mercer. He takes a bullet in the head. Because of the failure to send out scouts to fully reconnoiter what was going on, to get a sense of how big Mahout's force was and where it was, Hazlitt's tiny force put themselves in a position where they were at severe risk, shall we say, and a number of very valuable, capable officers, starting, of course, with Mercer and Hazlitt, would pay the ultimate price. And Washington recognized this when his correspondence after the battle. He realized how costly the battle had been in terms of the men he had lost and officers who would not be easily replaced. There is this long-standing legend. He shed tears over Hazlitt's lifeless body on the Princeton battlefield. And it was at that point, after he'd been killed, that there was found in his pocket a written order, which Washington had given him a few days before the battle, to return to Delaware for the winter to rest and to assist in recruiting a new regiment. So he didn't have to be at Princeton. Washington had given him express authorization to go home. But Hazlitt says in his letter to Rodney two days before, he mentions this order. He says that he had to stay for a few days longer. So I think it was his intent to see the army established in its winter quarters up in Morristown, uh, which of course is where they went after the battle. And at that point, he would have felt that he could, in good conscience, leave the army and go back to Delaware and help to recruit a new regiment. The regiment does reconstitute and joins back up with Washington's army without Colonel Hazlitt at its head. I guess, though, that's the end of our story here because it's the end of John Hazlitt's world. Yeah, uh, well, it's a, it's a remarkable story. I do I incorporate a short chapter about that in my book. I wasn't trying to emulate Christopher Ward's iconic history of the regiment, which is in effect the military history of the war because they served in almost every major battle except for the Saratoga campaign. But I thought it was important to have that context. Even though they were a smaller unit, still the Delawares distinguished themselves fighting alongside the Marylanders, as I said before, 
uh, especially in the Southern Campaign, places like Guilford Courthouse and Utah Springs, they really provided yeoman service. It's, it's a remarkable story. I mean, certainly Hazlitt's is and that of his, his regiment, but the service of the Delaware Regiment throughout the war, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a unit, maybe the Marylanders, but you'd be hard pressed to find a unit that contributed more and sacrificed more in the course of the entire war for independence than the Delaware Blues. What I've tried to do in each case is, as I mentioned, these are part of a trilogy, is to write about the 10 crucial days in a more focused way in the first two books, because the Hazlitt book goes obviously beyond that. So are you working on a fourth book now, or are you taking some time off? Yeah, I am taking a break from writing a book. I, I wrote, what is it, three books in five years. What I'm doing now is a series of blog posts on a new website that I launched that I had created back in the summer. And uh, so this blog post, which is under the heading, Speaking of Which, on my website, which, if I may interject here, seamlessly, DP author, that's DP as in David Price, dpauthor.com, series of blog posts on um, various Rev War related topics. So, uh, yeah, I have been putting a lot of effort into that. All right, David Price, I thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Your book, again, is called John Hazlitt's World. It's a great read and on sale now, along with your other two books. Thank you for joining the American Revolution podcast. Thank you very much, Mike. It's been an honor to be here. My thanks again to David Price for taking the time to speak with me. If you go to my blog entry for this episode, you can find a complete transcript of our discussion. You will also find links not only to his current book, John Hazlitt's World, but also to his two earlier books, Rescuing the Revolution, Unsung Patriot Heroes and the Ten Crucial Days of America's War for Independence, as well as The Road to Assunpink Creek, Liberty's Desperate Hour and the Ten Crucial Days of the American Revolution. You will also find links to some of his other works, including his website, dpauthor.com. Go to blog.amrevpodcast.com for more details. Well, that's all for this episode. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. When a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. I'm Tracy. And I'm Rich. And we want to invite you to join us as we take an in-depth look at this pivotal era in American history. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts.